This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health, a new, fully integrated biopharmaceutical solutions organization that's the result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health. Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit cineoshealth.com podcast. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is August 15th, and we'll be talking healthcare. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I'm joined by Fool.com contributor Todd Campbell via Skype. We have a ton to cover today, an update on Rite Aid's woes, a historic FDA approval, and first, Spark Therapeutics, ticker ONCE once, lost 28% of its market cap on Tuesday of last week. We weren't able to cover it on our last healthcare show, so we're digging in today. Todd, what happened? It's funny, I was looking at these three stocks we're, we're following, and it's like the, the three tough luck tumbles. Yeah, it's, it's so, pretty much all bad news today, so buckle yeah, up. Yeah, so you know, investors, bear with us, bear with us. Uh, we're going to try and we'll hold your hands and get you through this this crazy time. You know, I guess history does rhyme, right, Christine? I mean, Spark Therapeutics um, reported data for its hemophilia A gene therapy, and like you said, uh, it got whacked after the, the data got parsed by investors. That's very similar to what we saw happen back in December, right? When they uh, reported interim data for the same exact gene therapy and investors concluded after looking at that data that Spark Therapeutics SPK8001 may not be as robust of a treatment option as competitor Biomarin's, which, uh, Biomarin is working on a, on, on a similar gene therapy. I won't even try to pronounce the name of it. It's long. It's crazy. It's got all sorts of letters in it. We'll call it by its old name, BMN270. And essentially what, these, what both of these therapies are trying to do is they're trying to significantly improve the quality of life for people with hemophilia A. And hemophilia A is a disease that's characterized by an inability to produce a blood clotting factor. And as a result, these patients are at risk for um, serious bleeds, and they must, you know, have regular prophylactic uh, infusions of their missing factor eight um, coagulant. Right, and efficacy for this Spark drug, which is SPK eight zero one one, was pretty strong. Um, But there was some concerns about safety. Seven of the patients in the trial needed to take steroids to offset the immune response that they had to the drug. Some patients also showed signs of liver damage. And this clotting factor that the drug is designed to help with, levels of that declined enough that two of the patients in the study required infusions of the factor replacement therapy once again. Yeah, let's dive into that a little bit. So back in December... SPK8011, the doses that, that Spark was, was investigating at that time, delivered factor eight activity levels that ranged between 9% and 37%. For comparison, Biomarin's data showed activity levels of 49%. So you ask, well, why is that important? That's a lot of numbers, Todd, right? If you look at what's normal, activity levels of 50% and up are what's normal. However, if you ask any clinician, they're going to tell you that as long as you have an activity level of greater than 12%, you're likely to avoid the serious bleeds. So I think investors might be looking at this data and saying, oh, well, Biomarin's is more robust, but kind of missing the point that both of these gene therapies 
could significantly, you know, remove the need for for these prophylactic infusions. I think, you know, if you look at specifically the data that's that that Spark just put out, okay, you saw an increase in the activity levels uh, on this higher dose cohort that they're now added to their their trial. Um, like you mentioned, there were some immune responses that you know concern investors. Though you had five patients who were given the higher dose, they saw in those five percent five patients a one hundred percent reduction in both bleeding events and need for prophylactic treatment. Pretty good, right? One hundred percent. But as you mentioned, there were two specific cases where an immune response caused a decrease in activity levels below 5%, and that caused these patients to have to get steroid treatment. So, you know, people are looking at it and saying, well, if 7 of 12 total patients, 12 total have been tested so far across all cohorts, needed to have steroids because of elevated alts that could signal, you know, some liver problems, um, and two, had needed special intervention to get themselves back on track, does that mean that this is an unsafe drug? Right. And we'll see um, as we move forward, they are going to take the drug into a phase three trial. So more data will come out then and we can see exactly uh, how serious these adverse events might be across a larger patient uh, cohort. But there will be this impending competition from Biomarin. Um, meanwhile, though, there are other things going on with Spark Therapeutics. The name might sound familiar because we've previously talked on the show about Luxturna, which was their first gene therapy to be approved as a one and done treatment for a rare type of blindness. They also have already started a pivotal trial in hemophilia B, which is another drug with an insane name that we're not going to try to say on the show. But ultimately, this is still a pretty early stage company. And so that's why you're seeing this volatility. The company had run up quite a bit based on the early data from SPK8011. Um, also, they have a, a partnership with Pfizer that was very exciting to hear about. The Luxterna appro- approval, of course, was good news. And so now it's being walked back a little bit. Yeah, you look at, I'm glad you mentioned that. If you look at December when they got hit by like 30% after the news broke and they compared the, you know, the results, the Biomarin's results, um, you would have doubled your money buying it that time when it fell. I don't know whether, no one knows, right, where this stock is going to go from here. But they do have a lot of interesting things going on. The one other thing that I would mention is that um, in addition to the competitive threat from Biomarin, um, Sangamo, uh, which is a, another gene therapy company, they are also working on a drug for hemophilia A. So it could be that, you know, while this is a, a, a billion dollar plus market and maybe it can support multiple players, it could be that, you know, in two or three years when all these drugs are, are reading out their phase three data and, and making their way to the FDA, it could be that they have to really cut that pie up in a few different places. And we'll be right back with more after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, they're changing the game. As a result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, they have created a unique business model that allows clinical and commercial disciplines to work together, eliminating traditional process obstacles and delivering something they call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Helping their customers accelerate the delivery of important therapies to patients, Senios Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit SeniosHealth.com slash podcast. 
Rite Aid, another company with a fantastic ticker, RAD, RAD, has also had a disappointing week. The stock is down nearly 20% over the last week following the Thursday announcement that the company is terminating its $24 billion merger with grocery chain Albertsons. The announcement came on the eve of a shareholder vote. What's the story here? The company desperately wants to go to prom, but it keeps getting stood up, Christine. Oh, that's so sad. Poor Rite Aid. I know. <laughs> Poor Rite Aid. You know, Rite Aid is uh, the third largest in of the standalone pharmacy players. You know, you've got Walgreens, obviously CVS. You've got Rite Aid, right? And Rite Aid has come to the conclusion. It came to the conclusion a few years ago that as a standalone company, it was going to struggle to compete against its much bigger foes, especially because it's been dealing with for about a decade a tremendous amount of debt that it took on through its own acquisition spree uh, during the 2000s. So initially, you know, Rite Aid's solution was, oh, I know what I'll do is I'll sell myself lock, stock and barrel to Walgreens, right? Well, regulators objected to that because they decided that that would consolidate too much market power um, in the pharmacy market, so they blocked that deal. Rite Aid then had to go back with Walgreens and ink a new deal in which they basically sold almost half of their stores and a few distribution centers to Walgreens in exchange for a pile of cash that they could then use to help delever their balance sheet. And then more recently in May, Rite Aid finally found a suitor for the rest of the company. Uh, agreeing to merge together with the venture-backed Albertsons, which is one of the largest grocers in America. And if you don't know the Albertsons brand, you may know some of the other brands, which include Safeway uh, and in the Northeast, Shaw's. That deal, however, has now also been scuttled. And that's kind of brought us back to square one as investors. Right. So a lot of the biggest shareholders in Rite Aid were not happy about the Albertsons deal. They seem to think that Rite Aid was not getting a good enough valuation in this deal. And so it's interesting to me that shares plummeted on the news that investors got what they supposedly wanted. So I, I can't really explain that one, but there are no breakup fees for either company. So that's at least a small positive for Rite Aid. But honestly, this company is really, really struggling. It's down to a $1.5 billion market cap, and it still has a retail footprint. It still has a PDM. But I, I honestly can't say that I think that it's in value territory right now and might be a good buy, just because you look at the broader pharmacy retail landscape, and it's not even the best positioned company in that space, and yet the entire space is being pressured by competition from Amazon. So, it has a really small scale. I can't, I, I don't, I'm not very bullish on its future. The one thing I will say is that if I could look into my crystal ball and make a prediction here, I can see the company being picked apart. And if you separate the PBM from the retail business, I could see a little bit of promise in the PBM. Um, potentially, it could be, uh, it could have a little bit of success if it's able to partner with some of these smaller health insurers that are looking to partner with a PBM that's not affiliated with the competitor, it, just given how many other large PBMs are now affiliated with giant insurance companies. Um, so that could work to its advantage. We'll see. Uh, that's about all I have as far as optimism for Rite Aid goes. 
Yeah, you know, I think one of the reasons they sold off is that the hope wasn't necessarily that the deal would get scuttled, Christine, but maybe the Albertsons would rework the deal and give Rite Aid investors a bigger share of the combined company. You know, the way that the deal was structured was that Rite Aid shareholders would end up owning, uh, I think it was 29% of the combined Albertsons Rite Aid. The problem that investors had with that is that Albertson being privately held, very hard to value that. You know, what is Albertson really worth? We don't know because it's not publicly traded. We don't have that price discovery. So as a result, people were looking at it and going, I don't know if we're really getting the value that we deserve out of it. Maybe it would have been nice if they were able to restructure the deal where Rite Aid shareholders got a little bit bigger share of the company. Um, but even then, who knows, maybe they would have balked it as well. I have similar concerns about it as a standalone basis. I mean, if you look at even with all the pile of money that they got from Walgreens, they still have, as of June, $3 billion in uh, debt on the books. Their interest expense last quarter was $62 million. And if you look at it as a result of that interest expense, their net loss from continuing operations was about $42 million. So obviously that interest expense it remains a very big problem for the company. If they could solve that problem, theoretically that they would be profitable on a gap basis. But you know we just don't have a clear... I guess, path for them to be able to do that. And if you look at the fact that CVS is combining with Aetna, and that's going to basically narrow, I suppose, the, the, the ability for Aetna members to go to Rite Aid, you know, and what kind of a drag that puts on it. You look at Walgreens and the fact that they own part of Amerisource Bergen, so that they've got some synergies, obviously, that Rite Aid doesn't have. Um, yeah, there's there's some, some real concerns of how this company competes uh, as a standalone. And I think it should be one of those kind of wait and see stocks. Let's see how this goes over the course of the next quarter or two, see whether or not they can start to get, um, you know, the prescription volume trends moving in the right direction. And given how long this saga has already played out, I feel like we'll be covering it for years to come. I mean, this this thing has really just stretched on. Rite Aid claims that it's in discussions with an extensive list of third parties around a range of strategic options. So take that for whatever it's worth. Um, supposedly there are interested buyers, but it's pretty clear that Rite Aid is in a somewhat desperate situation. So I don't know that they're going to find a deal that's more favorable than this one with Albertsons would have been. It may be one of those things where people go, oh, maybe I didn't want to object to that deal after all. But, you know, time will tell. We'll have to we'll have to keep a close eye on it, Christine. Yeah, we'll see. So for our last story of the day, Alnylam had its drug Patisserin, which is now known as Onpatro, approved last Friday for nerve damage that's caused by a rare disease, disease known as HATTR. Um you would think that that's good news, and it is monumental, interesting news from a scientific perspective. From a stock perspective, the company's market cap actually fell a little bit in wake of the news. Yeah, you know, Alan and Liam, they're working on a mechanism of action that's pretty unique. They're targeting RNA. I, RNA interference. And they, the goal here is to, genes obviously control the production of proteins. And a lot of diseases are, are associated with or caused by the overproduction or underproduction or incorrect production of proteins by these genes. And messenger RNA is used to execute the genes rules. So to create those proteins. Well, RNAi is a naturally occurring um, path that, that basically disrupts the protein production. So what alnylam has been able to do is develop this new drug that can interfere the production of this protein that is in these patients uh, being 
produced incorrectly. And in these patients, because it's being in, produced incorrectly, it's building up in vital organs and around nerves. And that's causing all sorts of problems for these patients. As you mentioned, it's a rare disease, um, but this is the first FDA-approved treatment for it. Uh, Al Nilam estimates that based on the label that they were given, that they can treat about 3,000 people in the U.S. So their, their addressable market is about 3,000 people in the U.S. And with a sky-high price tag, theoretically, that could still translate into a nine-figure drug. But, Christine, I'm sure we'll talk about this, there's some competition looming, too, that we as investors have to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk first about the price that you mentioned, which is quite high. Uh, list price is $450,000 per year. And they claim that the after discounts, the price will be $345,000, so quite the deal there. And they've also said that they're going to introduce value-based pricing, meaning that if the drug doesn't work or it doesn't work very well, you don't pay or you don't pay as much. And so the, the details on what that pricing structure breaks down to are still hazy. And I think that's a big reason why people, investors, reacted poorly to this news, because revenue forecasts with value-based pricing are very difficult to make. And so I, I think people were disappointed about that. And I think investors were also disappointed over the label uh, for the drug itself. Alnanum had hoped to include some trial results that showed cardiac benefits and put that on the label itself. But the F FDA disagreed with that. Um, and then, as you mentioned, also, there is competition coming both from uh, Ionis and from Pfizer. And so that cardiac benefit could have been a differenti differentiating factor on its label that it now doesn't have. Yeah, it's been argued that that's actually the most important part of this um, patient population to address is the, the cardiac risk to these patients and not having that data on included on the label. And honestly, I, I really didn't think that they were going to be able to get that on the label. You know, the, the, it wasn't powered, the study wasn't powered to for that. Um, so I, I'm not surprised that that's not on the label. Um, you know, as far as the value right based pricing goes, what I've seen so far is that they're going to get a baseline reading on the patient's. Then about a nine months to a year later, they'll go back, they'll get another exam on those patients to see whether or not, you know, their pain is being managed well and whether or not they're staying out of the hospital. And if they're able to show that, then in their view, they deserve the whole, you know, amount of money. So the 300,000 plus, um, if they don't achieve that, then that's when that, that rebate would, would come back into play. And, and what's interesting too, is that the, the money, the value-based pricing deal, it's a rebate. And, you know, we've talked about or we've heard about in the media a lot about the concept of getting rid of rebates. So I don't know how I don't know how that value based pricing would work if we did say, oh, no, I, you know, I can't offer rebates anymore. I don't, I don't know how that would work. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. You did also mention the competitive landscape, and that is fast evolving. I mean, if you look at Ionis's drug, they're working with their spin out Axia um, on that drug. They've already won approval in the European Union for it. So, you know, Alnilam has the first FDA-approved drug for this indication, but it's Ionis Vaxia that have the first European approval for this indication, and the FDA approval for Ionis Vaxia's drug is expected in October. So you're not locking about a very big head start for uh, Alnilam, which means that you're going to end up having to come to, come, you know, make this decision based on what you, the doctor views as being the most efficacious and safest treatment, the easiest dosing 
uh, ritual, et cetera. I'm not sure that we can come to any conclusions on which of these is the better drugs. And then you look at the Pfizer situation, which is really interesting because Pfizer is expected to roll out data later this month for a drug called Tafam, I can't pronounce it, Tafam, Tafamitis, I don't know, Tafamitis. And um, that's a phase three trial and it's specifically designed to evaluate the cardiac impact. So theoretically, if that trial is the full data results back up um, and, and show that this is, is very good at reducing hospitalizations because of cardiac problems, then, you know, it could end up carving away a lot of this, this relatively small market, right? It's a 3,000 patient market in the U.S. the way that uh, Elmylam uh, can target it. So maybe they're looking at it and saying Elmylam's got a high-priced drug, but 3,000 patients that they can treat, maybe some they lose some of those off to ionostaxia, and they lose some of that off to Pfizer. Yeah, the Pfizer drug is pretty interesting because it's an oral drug, so it's got the convenience edge. It's also been on the market in Europe for years, and so it has an established safety track record, which if I'm a doctor and I'm trying to decide which medicine to prescribe, I'm probably going to choose the one that I know is safe. But this is not all bad news. Um, it is still... Awesome news for patients to have this treatment on the market. Even though there are around 3,000 people that the drug can currently address, it's widely believed that this is a more widely spread disease um, that could affect around 50,000 people worldwide. It's just underdiagnosed. And previous treatments were just for symptom management. So to have a, a drug that can come in and actually silence the gene responsible for it is pretty cool. This is also the first time that an RNA interference drug was ever approved by the FDA. And this is Nobel Prize winning technology. So very cool from a scientific perspective, from a patient perspective. Um, it's also good news for Alnylam in terms of validating its RNAi-based platform. They have three other late-stage RNAi drugs being developed. So, the, you know, hopefully this goes a long way to validate that, yes, the FDA will approve RNAi drugs. Um, that said, though, if you tie it all together, the stock is sitting at $9 billion in market cap. That, to me, seems pretty expensive. Um, I, I would say that that kind of indicates that success is expected now for all of those other late-stage drugs. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, investors have really, in the past year, a lot of this exciting technology you and I, Christina, have talked about in the last couple of years, is finally making it to market. And one of the things investors are seeing is that there's a big difference in how investors value clinical stage companies versus commercial stage companies. And, and oftentimes what ends up happening is it's not that easy to, to jump out of the gate with a big commercial success, even if you've got pie in the sky forecast for it. So you end up kind of, I don't know, investors tend to move into other more exciting clinical stage companies. And as a result, the share price of these stocks tends to uh, trade sideways to down, at least until, you know, we get a couple quarters behind it and can actually see that, yes, this is indeed a very big market that they're able to tackle. Yeah. So all told, we covered three stories of stocks losing value this week. And so I want to end us on some optimism. Uh, so I'm taking this from uh, Commissioner FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb regarding the Alnylam approval. He says, the approval is part of a broader wave of advances that allow us to treat disease by actually targeting the root cause, enabling us to arrest or reverse a condition rather than only being able to slow its progression or treat its symptoms. And so overall, I think that's very positive news for 
the whole medical landscape, having one and done models where you can get in, target the root cause of a disease, and rather than having patients have to manage their symptoms for the rest of their lives, being able to actually get at the root cause and stop or reverse the disease itself is really great news. And I love seeing companies working on this type of treatment. Yeah, it only took 16 years to do it, but they did it. Yeah, it has taken on Nylum a long, long time. Their their management team, you can just hear them being like, finally, this is the best moment of my career. It has taken me decades to do this. And yeah, they they definitely um, did not have an easy pathway. Right. And if you toss aside just the, the dollars and cents of it, this is just a, such a, like you said, an exciting time for patients. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! These days, bringing a new drug to life is getting tougher and tougher. It can take billions of dollars and a decade or more to bring an experimental drug from molecule to market. And only one in five marketed drugs ever achieve revenues that match or exceed R&D costs. At Cineos Health, we're working to improve the odds. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health is the only company purpose-built to create what we call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Our unique business model allows the clinical and commercial disciplines to work together from the start, sharing critical data, insights, and knowledge. The Cineos Health approach creates success by eliminating traditional obstacles and smoothing the process at every step along the way, from clinical trials to FDA approval, branding and marketing to patient adherence. Every day, Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit SineosHealth.com slash podcast.